It's August 2010, early in the morning, one minute past two to be exact. An alarm has been triggered at Drottningholm Palace in Sweden. This is the Swedish royal residence, and they have this little Chinese museum on the grounds. The alarm's going off, but the police are busy elsewhere. In the city, thieves light cars on fire, just distract the police and pull their resources away. It's a distraction that won't last long. The thieves only have a few minutes to complete their mission. As the police are responding to these car fires, the thieves break in and very cunningly steal exactly what they're looking for. These are some smooth criminals. Everything has been planned meticulously, from the burning of the cars to the heist. It seems like they're working from a sort of shopping list because there are other more valuable pieces that they leave behind. Guards arrive at the royal residence within six minutes of the alarm being triggered. But the thieves are already gone and there's no sign of them. They've already made their escape. They race down to the water on mopeds, ditch the mopeds in the water and escape on a speedboat. You're probably thinking what I'm thinking. That this is a plot from like a new oceans 1340. I don't I can't keep up with how many oceans there are. What I'm about to propose to you is both highly lucrative and highly dangerous. But this is all real. The police are in hot pursuit. Their sniffer dogs have picked up the scent of the robbers and tracked them to the water's edge. But it's too late. All that's left is a single moped sinking in the water. And then it happened again. And again. And again, museums in Norway, England, and France were hit next. It was really stunning what was happening, and in such quick succession. I'm Alzo Slade, and this is Cheat, the podcast where we ask, is it ever okay to break the rules? In this week's episode, we're finding out about a series of heists that shine a light on one of the biggest cheats in history. The idea of a museum is pretty cool. The general public having access to art and history from various cultures. You walk around, marveling at the columns from Greece, bronzes from Benin, stone sculptures from India. But did you ever stop and ask, how did this stuff get here in the first place? And what would happen if those countries wanted their stuff back? In 2009, China made an announcement that they would be sending a research team to a selection of museums across the world to scope out what Chinese artifacts each museum had in their collection. They made this announcement, and it left museums scrambling. That's Alex Palmer. He wrote an article for GQ about this very thing. So obviously the goal was to bring attention to this and to sort of put pressure on Western museums by saying, like, look, we're watching. The Chinese people know about this, and we're going to keep hunting until we find it. So China felt that Western museums proudly displaying these items that had been stolen from them immortalized China's weakest moments in history. It really represents the humiliation and the failure of China for, for a century, and that bringing these items back represents salvation and rejuvenation and the dream of the Chinese people. So the Chinese state went on a mission to bring it all home. But 
They weren't going to wait for other countries to do it on their own accord. So you had like treasure hunting teams being dispatched to Western museums, including the Met in New York. A team of about 10 people from China went to visit the Met. And these would include archaeologists, but also a lot of people from Chinese media, state media. The Met was suspicious and they were worried. They had no clue what this research team had come to do. They were wondering, well, are you just coming to do research? Are they going to come and claim items right there? Uh, Are they just trying to learn? Who are they giving this information to? Who is sending them? The research team proceeded to look around. They're looking around the hallways, looking for items they recognize. The Chinese state media is obviously taking videos, shooting segments, taking photos, making notes. They're talking to the curators there. They're asking about the provenance of items. Alex spoke to people from both the Met and the research team and heard very different stories about what happened that day. Publicly, the Met said, It was just a great cross-cultural visit and everything was hunky-dory. But the Chinese research team painted a very different picture when they spoke to Alex. When they got there, everybody seemed very nervous and very panicked and weren't sure what was happening. They said someone from the Met handed one of the researchers a phone. They'd gotten some you know, Chinese lawyer in New York City trying to explain to him, like, all the art that we have here has been legally acquired and uh, it has no stolen provenance and we can prove it. Uh, and the Met denies that that phone call ever took place. Despite the apparent panic, the research visit was eventually pretty uneventful. There was no big standoff with demands for the items to be returned. The team took some photos, packed up, and went home. Yeah, it's a bit of an anticlimax, I know. And for six years, nothing more came of it. Until March 1st, 2015, when the real fun started to happen. Lu Young, one of the Chinese research team members who had visited the Met, got a call. He got a call in very panicked, very broken Chinese. It was someone affiliated with the Chateau de Fontainebleau, a museum in France. They said, We just had this break-in. Just 30 minutes before, the thieves had broken into the royal residence just outside of Paris. It's thousands and thousands of rooms. It's this huge grounds. But when these thieves come, they know exactly what they're looking for. And this is where the whole thing takes that Ocean's 11, 12, or 13 turn. This was obviously a professional job. They break into uh, a window from the outside. They rush in and they steal, you know, I think it's about two dozen items from the Chinese museum. The alarms are going off, but they're in and out in just a couple minutes. The thieves don't touch more valuable items. They've got their eyes on a specific set of artifacts. And as they're leaving to cover their tracks, they spray a fire extinguisher on everything to cover their footprints, to remove their DNA, to cover their fingerprints. Man, I told you all, these are some smooth criminals. The police were there within minutes, but it was too late. The thieves had escaped with the priceless artifacts. And that's when someone called Lou Young. They cut straight to it. They said, We just had this break-in, and you just published a book listing everything that had been stolen from China, including items in our collection. Do you see a connection between these two things? You see, Lu Young had made a name for himself by documenting the history and whereabouts of as many Chinese artifacts as he could. And now, the person on the other end of the phone was accusing Lu Young's book of informing the robberies. He was very chill about it. He just suggested that maybe they should improve their security and tell other museums to improve theirs as well. Lu Young, he was like, bro, 
do not blame my book. You just need to tighten up on your security. That probably didn't go well with the museum. It turns out that France wasn't the only place that was hit. There were a string of other heists happening, one after the other, from 2010 to 2015. They were daring, they were cinematic, they were at what should have been the best guarded museums in Europe. That's coming up after the break. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Museums around the world were on high alert. Heists were taking place left, right, and center. It looked like even the most secure museums were no match for these professional thieves. You have the Kone Museum. I believe it's that December. That is in Bergen, Norway. Then you have a number of them in the UK, the Durham Museum, the Fitzwilliam at Cambridge. You have the Kone again in January 2013. And of course, the Swedish royal residence you heard at the top of the show. And that's not even all the museums. There were a lot of smaller heists that took place that didn't make the big headlines. And there's probably plenty other thefts that were never even reported. Because if you're a museum, you really don't want to report break-ins because it shows weakness in your security. See, I told you, this is some proper Hollywood movie shit, right? People escaping on speedboats, setting cars on fire as a distraction, spraying fire extinguishers to cover their footprints and fingerprints. It's crazy. So by this time, it had become pretty obvious that the thieves had a very clear motive. So it's almost exclusively items that were once pilfered from China by foreign armies. Interpol, specialized art crime units, everyone was on high alert trying to find these stolen pieces. The items seem to just disappear. You know, usually with things like this, you would hear some kind of ransom or they end up on the black market. Not in this case. They just uh, are gone. I mean, that's pretty weird. We're talking about a lot of stolen artifacts here. About 78 from the museum in Norway, 22 from the museum in France, and all the leads were going cold. And then one day, after the second break-in at the Kode Museum in Norway in 2013, Authorities received a tip. One of the items that had been stolen from the Kode had shown up. It had ended up in China on display. And you'll never guess where it had been found. At a, a sort of airport museum in Shanghai. Ha! That's comical. A stolen object that everybody's hunting for just turning up in an airport museum where folks walk by it every day like nothing happened. Norwegian authorities presented this to China 
How in the world do you ask for an item back that you shouldn't have in the first place? I can't imagine China took that phone call seriously at all. According to the head of the Norwegian Art Crime Unit, China says, prove it. If you're going to insult us like that, you better have proof. And if, if you can't go there, if you don't have the jurisdiction to go look for it yourself, it's pretty hard to do from thousands of miles away. So Norway, they left it alone. I mean, what are they going to do? It's not worth the international relations headache to try and pursue it. In China, everything seems political. They pay attention to and pretty much remember everything. And when it comes to negotiating that new trade deal, do you really want them bringing up the time that you demanded their own art back from them? You can't poke them in the eye with one thing and expect a handshake on the next thing. I mean, he has a point. China's too powerful to make an enemy of, and they're not a country that shies away from asserting that power. So most of the museums that were robbed, they just had to accept that the art wasn't coming back. But that didn't mean the investigation stopped. The consensus of everyone I talked to, all the detectives and all the art crime experts, was that there is either some entity or some individual who is interested in these items, clearly knows exactly what they want because they give the thieves a shopping list and is just paying people to go after it wherever they can. It was a large-scale operation that would involve paying a lot of people off. So it had to be someone powerful and rich behind these heists. Plus, one of the pieces ended up in that Shanghai airport. So they got the item all the way back to China. And it was pretty much only looted artifacts that were stolen. A clear MO. With all of that in mind, people started to suspect that it had to be funded by a big entity. An entity like the Chinese state. Well, that was a theory at least. A theory that we wanted to know more about a theory we wanted to speak to someone about to find out the truth. Except no one wanted to talk to us. That's coming up after the break. As part of making this episode, we reached out to a lot of people. 23 to be exact. We tried Chinese art experts, millionaire art collectors, a volunteer who'd started her own group to locate Chinese art and bring it home. And one after the other, they all declined to be interviewed. It was baffling. So I called up Mark Fennell, someone who has spent the last few years researching colonized artifacts living in museums and countries many miles away from where they started out. I'm a journalist. I'm also the creator of a, of a podcast called Stuff the British Stole, where I sort of investigate objects that were taken in the days of the British Empire that usually end up in museums with nice polite plaques and I've made it my mission to tell the not-so-polite history of some of those objects. In doing this episode, we reached out to about 23 different people to talk about these Chinese art heists and they either ignored us or they just downright didn't want to talk because of how sensitive the subject was and they didn't want their words to be weaponized. And I found that to be interesting. Like, have you have you experienced that sort of thing before? And why do you think people are so scared to talk about these things? Well, I mean, I guess in the sense that if you're part of the game, then you put yourself at risk by talking about this stuff. Some of this doesn't make sense to me because it, it seems simple. Like, you stole our shit. The world knows you stole it. What's so complicated about it? Like, you stole it. <laughs> You know you stole it. We know you stole it. 
Just give it back and we'll be good. Do you want to know my blunt answer to that question? Please. You and I don't think it's complicated because you and I are brown. So for you and I, it is simple because we see it, because we understand what it's like to have something taken or stolen, or you can see the footprints of the empire in our lives. Yeah, that's true. And if I'm honest, I find it nearly impossible to see it from the other side. So I think the best way to approach this is to zoom out and look at exactly how some of these Chinese items came into the possession of Western countries. There was a lot of things that were looted from China over the over the years. It had a really complicated relationship with a lot of uh, colonial powers. But I think one of the most iconic moments is um, is what they call the the ransacking of the Summer Palace. At this particular moment in history, uh, you've got a wave of a few different countries coming into China. These countries included Britain and France, and they have this beautiful summer palace that even like British soldiers would write back saying how unbelievably beautiful it was. And when they got there, they basically decided that they were going to destroy it, that they were going to flatten it. And one of the reasons why they did that was because the Chinese had taken a bunch of hostages, British hostages, and had in fact killed them and tortured them. And the British sort of felt like they had no choice, rightly or wrongly, but to punish the Chinese. So it was decided what they would destroy is not the government, the Forbidden City, but actually the thing that mattered most to the emperor, which was his home. And that was the Summer Palace. And the Summer Palace is huge. It's football fields wide. It was designed as this incredible environment where not only was it a palace, but it was also a a park, right? And the whole idea was you would move from different parts of this palace land, and it was designed to represent the different parts of the earth. So you'd go into kind of garden areas, you'd go into temple areas, you'd go into places where horses could go, you could go into places where peacocks could live. It was designed to be so beautiful that simply being there was going to get you closer to being a deity. That's how beautiful it was. Yeah, that's, that's disrespectful. <laughs> yeah. That's utterly disrespectful. Yeah, and, but the interesting thing about it, though, is, uh, and this is not to excuse it, because even in the moment when it happened, British soldiers write back to their family saying, we just did something terrible. The French and the English were sort of in a bit of a, a race for who could collect the most stuff. You know, Napoleon wanted to collect stuff to put in French museums. Britain wanted to put um, collect stuff largely to put in in the houses at this point in time or to, you know, to give up to royalty and say, look at this wonderful thing I looted in the name of the Queen. I even heard that the Queen was given a dog that she (laughs) aptly named Ludi. That's true. Is that, is that, is that serious? Well, let me tell you the story. So the story is inside the Summer Palace in the Emperor's home, They kept these dogs, these tiny, tiny dogs that were usually kept for the women. They were small, and so they were often kept in sleeves, in their their, their big sort of flowing sleeves. And the story that has been passed down for generation after generation is that the soldiers, as they were ransacking the palace, collected these dogs. And they brought these dogs back to the queen, and they presented them to the queen. And this speaks to the hubris of the British Empire, but the dog was named, literally named, Looty. This is what I'm saying, man. This is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's just brazen disrespect. Oh yeah, and she didn't even like it. She didn't even like the dog. Which <laughs> is the funny thing, though. But the dogs ended up staying in her kennels. But, like she kind of kept it because it was a nice thing to get. 
They even start breeding them to kind of match the mythology. So they breed them small. They don't let them grow big. You know, like there's little things like that that happen. They can, and they kind of, it feeds into this idea of like an effete Chinaman. Like that's, that's what they're kind of trying to, to lean into their perception of this, of this kind of idea of what a, a Chinese person is. And you see kind of these ideas coalesce around the breeding of a dog. That's really fascinating. I, w- I wouldn't use fascinating. <laughs> I, would, I, I would say it's, it's, it's really some bullshit. That's what I would say. Oh, it's that too. It, it, it is that too. But I guess one of the weird things that happens when you spend a lot of your life looking into this stuff is the question I always come back to is, what does this tell us about the world today? And a lot of these, you know, it, to me, like you can't separate colonialism from no, race absolutely. and how we view yeah. race. Yeah. And a lot of the ideas that happen in that period, those ideas have permeated culture right up to today and they shape our lives today. And I think one of the reasons why I find that story about Ludi really interesting is it says a lot about how the British Empire kind of personified the Chinese. And at that point, they personified them as being weak because they had dominated them so easily. That's important because it's that same image of China that China now is trying to leverage. They're trying to leverage with their saying, we are now strong. We are now claiming back the world. And it's important to understand that. And after the palace was ransacked and all of the beautiful items and the dogs were stolen, it was burned down. And what did China do? They left it like that to make a point. So they've actually turned this rubble, this this kind of decimated land into a nationalistic symbol. And it is a tourist attraction, but it is not a tourist attraction for foreigners. It is a tourist attraction for the Chinese to bring school kids, to bring old people, to come see this, it is a cautionary tale. And that's what they've turned it into. And it's really important. To never forget. Exactly, never forget. And that's the story of the Summer Palace, right? It's become a tool to point to why you need strength, why you need a strong government. And that's become a really important kind of part of the national, it's not a myth in the sense that it definitely happened, but it's how they've used it as a tool of, of reshaping how China and the Chinese government think of themselves. China calls this period of time the century of humiliation, when wave after wave of Western troops ransacked China's most beautiful sites, left them in ruins, and then took the spoils back home. Spoils that ended up in private collections, people's homes, Buckingham Palace, And yes, museums. Lots of museums. That's how a lot of stuff made its way into these Western institutions. It was colonization. In other words, the looting of other countries. Looting, which today would be called a war crime. Countries all over the African continent, Australia, the Caribbean, the list goes on. They take this very personally, which is completely understandable. So what would it mean for China to have those items returned? I think we're living through a really interesting moment right now where there's a sense amongst people that China is in the process of reclaiming their rightful place as the next great superpower, or or indeed already has. I think reclaiming things that were stolen feeds into that story. Now, I don't say that as necessarily a good thing or a bad thing, right? I want to be really clear on that. But I think that China is so powerful 
and so important, particularly, you know, where I live. Like, I live in Australia. We're just, like, south of them, right? Um, they're our most important kind of trading partner. We have to engage with China, right? And they know that. And that's how they treat the rest of the world, right? But now you have incredibly rich Chinese billionaires who are feeding into the national myth by buying back parts of their history that were, let's be honest, stolen. And it's become quite common. It, it kind of, they pop up at, at, you know, auctions and things like that. And they are in effect buying back their own history, basically in a part to kind of reclaim it. And I think that all of that, all of that is about reclaiming this, well, not, maybe not reclaiming, but just claiming a sense of superpowerdom. Why do you think they just acquiesce in buy the art back. I mean, the, the idea that you're buying something that was stolen back is is paradoxical in and of itself, like to buy back what was already mine. Why wouldn't they just say, hey, this is ours and the world knows it, so give it back? Two things. One, there's been quite a few cases of very rich Chinese business people going to these auctions, putting their hands up, agreeing to buy something, and then when the moment comes to actually hand over the cash, almost as like a pseudo protest saying, yeah, well, I'm not giving you money. This was ours to begin with. You kill two birds with one stone though, because what you actually do is, yeah, I'm gonna show off that I have the money to buy this thing back, but also I'm gonna do it in a way that furthers a nationalistic goal. That do it in a way that, mm. that makes me, that sort of curries favor with this broader national mythology, which does, if you're very rich in China, that matters. Being seen to be nationalistic, that matters. I asked Mark why museums just didn't return the items. That solves the problem, right? Or you can pay China to put them on display or work out a deal with them. You've got to remember, a lot of this stuff is legal. It's legal because the people that govern the laws, like you can't get something back from the British Museum in London because it is protected by British law, right? Because it was made legal. Yeah, so that, that's, the, that's the slick part, right? That's the, that's the legal cheat part is that, yes, we stole it, and we made it legal for us to have it after we stole it. Yeah. So, you know, you want an object lesson in how this goes, talk to the Greeks. So the Greeks are an occupied country, right? They're occupied by the Ottoman Empire. Ottoman Empire gives permission to the British ambassador to take all these marbles from on top of the Acropolis. This is, this is the Parthenon marbles that sit in the, in the um, British Museum. They get permission from an occupying force. The guy goes in, gets it out, long saga, gets it into Britain. And then when he's in Britain, British Parliament are like, whoa, 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 did you have permission to take this? He pulls out a letter from the Ottoman Empire saying, we give you permission. That is an occupying force telling you that you can take a thing. And, and with that, the British Parliament go, yeah, it's legal, you got permission. And it sits there. And for 200 years, the Greeks have been trying to get their stuff back and they can't. You'll recognize the Parthenon marbles when you see a photo. They're these huge Greek marble statues of people that used to be on the wall of a Greek temple. Until the British came in early one morning, tore them down, and took them home. British Museum collection is protected by British law. British law has been backed by successive years of British politicians. If you try and fight this in British law, you will lose, and you will lose every time. And when I say finders keepers, I mean finders keepers, because they have the law is on their side. This is some bullshit. <laughs> Welcome to the empire. <laughs> you know, the art that's been stolen from from West Africa and Japan, you know, these are these are mm. cultures that are very dynamic and their art has has some flavor, you know, has some funk. 
And I'm wondering, like, <laughs> if if you were to take all of the stolen art out of these Western museums, what would you be left with? Would it just be some lovely architecture? <laughs> some lovely architecture. Some lovely architecture that's that's pretty sterile. There's a long road ahead if all this stuff is ever going to be returned. But some institutions are trying to rectify the issue. A really good example of this is Pitt River Museum in the UK. They've been super active about reaching out to people in Tanzania, reaching out to people in, you know, Indigenous communities as far as Japan, going, hey, we have this stuff. What is the right way of, of, of treating it? Do you want it back? Do you want to come here and reshape how it's seen? Do you want to be involved in how we're packaging it up? There are some really good people that work in this space that are, the word decolonizing gets chucked around a lot and I don't use it often because I think it gets easily misunderstood, but in this instance it absolutely applies. Like they are taking these objects and going, all right, it was framed as like a primitive piece of artwork from a distant culture, but that's not true. And they're reframing it in partnership with those people, with those people, with, with representatives of those communities' consent. The answer to this problem isn't necessarily give everything back. I think it is that for some things, right? But sometimes the answer is... Working with Indigenous and colonised people. If you're from a culture where nothing's really been taken from you before, it might be hard to imagine why this has become so personal for China. But Alex, the writer we heard from at the start of the episode, spoke to the head of Polyculture, a Chinese company, who summarised it in a way I think we all can understand. If you kidnap my children and take good care of them, I shouldn't be grateful to you. That's still a crime. You still kidnap them. And that really is the level of emotion that is connected with a lot of these pieces. So you all know, we're always trying to answer the question, is it ever okay to cheat, to break the rules? And in this case, I gotta say, that stealing back your own property, that's not cheating. The cheat is making the looted items legal and bending the rules so you don't have to return them. Hey, what's up, Cheat listeners? I hope you enjoyed the episode. We got a quick favor to ask of you. We want to know what you think of the show, what stories you've liked, any that you didn't like, and if there are any cheat stories you'd like to hear on the show. To let us know, go to CheatPodcast.com and fill in a super quick listener survey. It'll take about 10 minutes, and it helps us learn more about you, our audience, which helps us sell the ads that keep this podcast free. Your opinions matter, and they help us know what you think is working and what we can do better. You know there's always room for improvement, and we want to know where. So go to CheatPodcast.com. Thanks a bunch. Thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like Cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next time on Cheat. The trust company was called Lahoo. And there was a letter to a client 
And it was, dear Mr. Cowan, welcome to LaHoo. We're very happy to be able to help you in all your money laundering needs. We've got 11 particular specialties. We've included a one-pager on each that's attached. Please be careful with these documents because, you know, you don't want them to fall into the wrong hands. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, oh my God, are they serious? Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. This episode was produced by Mira Kumar. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Joe Sykes. The original idea for this show was developed by Tom Fuller. Engineering, sound design, and scoring by Martin Peralta. Our design and visual team is Emma Lansdowne and Sarah De La Rue. Special thanks to Steve Ackerman, Mark Rivers, Peggy Sutton, and Ella McLeod.